Previously on Flying the Line, a new industry entrant advances his airline ambitions. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA is pilot-led and staff-supported, and volunteer opportunities for pilot leaders and subject matter experts are at an all-time high. Training is available for many of the positions, so reach out to your MBC leaders and see where you can contribute. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2 by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 11, Bad Dude Rising, Frank Lorenzo Grabs Continental, Part 1. The observation that life is not fair bears heavily on Alpa's history during the Duffy era, that Hank Duffy, the product of Delta's peaceful world, would find himself presiding over Alpa during a time of savage confrontations at Continental, United, and Eastern is nothing less than historic irony. But life isn't fair, and neither is history. Frank Lorenzo's emergence in the aviation industry guaranteed that. When last we left him, Lorenzo had successfully gobbled up Texas International, or TXI, stalemated J.J. O'Donnell, and converted himself from an industry lightweight to a heavyweight. As we heard in the New York Air episode, this upstart made himself thoroughly obnoxious to Alpa. He established links to Michael Milken, the junk bond king who would finance Lorenzo's ventures. The pilots and other unionized workers at TXI saw Lorenzo as the devil incarnate, but the rest of the airline community regarded him as innocuous. Former TXI Master Chair Dennis Higgins acknowledged that Lorenzo had a reputation for doing things real fancy. The pilots could hardly pick up a newspaper without reading something about their carrier, and, for that, they wanted to pat him on the back. However, they were also afraid he might just bite their arms off. Everybody loves a success story, and Frank Lorenzo seemed to personify it. He symbolized the rags-to-riches tale in his personal habits and his aggressive, workaholic style. However, J.J. O'Donnell was worried about Lorenzo. The Alpha president saw him as an amoral and potentially dangerous adversary, even under the pre-1978 regulation of the airline industry. With the coming of deregulation, O'Donnell fully supported the TXI pilots. He raised alarms about Lorenzo's methods and the omens his negotiating tactics raised for the future. But most ALPA members weren't overly concerned. To them, Frank Lorenzo was still just a small blip on the early warning radar. Although increasing numbers of informed ALPA members fretted about him, far too many line pilots saw Lorenzo as slightly comical. They particularly scoffed at his efforts to outbid Pan Am for control of National, or, barring that, muscling in on their markets with things like peanut fares. Many line pilots, including even a few who worked for him, actually saw Lorenzo as admirable, a go-getter 
who convinced large financial networks to support his ventures and generally shook things up in the industry. Based on what they knew of Lorenzo as a consultant, some pilots looked forward to having him come aboard. They wanted to be supportive because TXI had reached the top of its ability to produce profits, and the carrier had teetered on the edge of bankruptcy a couple times. This favorable attitude evaporated rapidly, but some Alpa insiders thought that focusing too heavily on Lorenzo, in a personal sense, was a mistake. They saw this as giving him too much free publicity and distracting Alpa from more serious problems. To turn Frank Lorenzo into the scourge of the industry prematurely would give him clout he didn't deserve. Plus, it might hamper efforts to work with him in the future, a particularly important consideration should Lorenzo actually succeed in establishing himself and his holding companies as major players in the industry. Tom Ashwood, who was secretary under O'Donnell and first vice president during the first Duffy administration, acknowledged that the pilots did everything but take out full-page ads insulting Lorenzo's wife. But by personalizing the attack on him, making him into Darth Vader, the pilots reached the stage where doing business with him was impossible. This view of Lorenzo was logical enough given the climate of labor relations during the long peace between management and pilots. After all, Alpa had not confronted a predatory airline owner for a long time, occasional unpleasantries notwithstanding. All that was about to change. The generation of professional airline pilots who matured in the 1970s had never dealt with an airline boss who manifested an instinct for the jugular. Recent experience led modern airline pilots to believe that their counterparts in management were reasonable technocrats who knew the limits of their power and understood that the airline business was, at base, a cooperative enterprise. Operating an airline required informed consent and mutual respect, particularly when dealing with flight deck crews. Even the fabled curmudgeons of the early years who survived into the modern era, like Bob Six of Continental Airlines, had eventually mellowed. A modern version of E.L. Cord was no longer possible, or so most pilots believed. The ghost of Dave Benke must have stirred uneasily somewhere, for, historically, the airline bosses he dealt with wanted the heads of their unionized pilots on a platter, not a good working relationship with them. Continental Airlines, whose pilots would shortly take center stage in the struggle against Lorenzo, worked in a corporate culture as distinctive as any in the industry, despite previous namesakes in the 1920s, the more recent version of their airline dated only to 1937, when Bob Six parlayed his holdings in Varney Air Transport into a merger with Wyoming Air Service. Six called the combined airline Continental, and, from the late 1930s through World War II, learned his business while benefiting from the cautious expansion that government regulators allowed. He inspired intense loyalty among his employees, developed a team of talented managerial subordinates, and eventually transformed Continental from a regional airline to a major carrier. As one of the smallest of the major airlines, Continental grew during the post-World War II period 
into a respectable operation, serving routes from Texas to the West Coast and beyond. In the 1950s, Continental acquired Pioneer Airlines, won the right to serve Chicago, and began flying turbine equipment, the Vickers Viscount. During the 1960s, Continental's flight crews gained international experience through the airline's Air Micronesia subsidiary, also known as Air Mike. They also graduated to the same equipment that the other major carriers were flying, mainly B-707s on military airlift command contract operations in the Pacific. During the long years of Bob Six's reign, Continental's pilot group developed a Delta-like reputation. They were steady and quiet about their unionism rather than militant. Continental pilots were more likely to be active in the professional and technical aspects of ALPA work, the nuts and bolts committees, than in the political side. Continental's ALPA members could occasionally be hard-nosed when they thought management was persecuting a pilot, but that was a rare occurrence. In general, the Continental pilots' calm approach spared them the kind of hostility that scarred relations between other ALPA pilot groups and management. The Continental pilots' relatively peaceful lives were purchased at a price, however. Owing to the airline's semi-feeder status in the early days, the pilots always lagged behind the national average in pay and benefits. They were so intensely proud of their airline that they were willing to swallow these inequities, for many non-economic compensations went with wearing a Continental uniform. Their special relationship with management and agreeable working conditions fostered a cohesive, close-knit sense of belonging. They tended to live in the same communities at the various domiciles, Denver, Los Angeles, Houston, and Honolulu, and socialized together, both as individuals and families. Despite a brief strike in the late 1950s during the struggle with the Flight Engineers International Association, over the qualifications of the third crew member, peace and goodwill reigned at Continental for many years. Being a Continental pilot and being a good company employee were almost synonymous. But change was coming. The temper of these changes between the old Continental pilot group and the pilots hired during the 1960s emerged clearly in the 22-day strike of 1976. It began when the junior pilot's patience with Bob Six's promises of pie in the sky ended in a three-way flurry of bad feelings among ALPA's national officers, the Continental MEC, and the Continental pilots themselves. Next time on Flying the Line, a rift between junior and senior Continental pilots occurs when they most desperately need to be unified. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 11, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time. This is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. 
production copyright ALPA 2023, all rights reserved.